Hello and welcome back to Horror from the High Desert. I am your host, Scotty Milder, and this week I'm here with Josh Schlossberg. So Josh Schlossberg's biological horror fiction has been published in numerous magazines and anthologies. He's the author of the eco-horror novel Charwood, that's from A Gotta Try It in 2023, as well as the Horror Authors Guild award-winning cosmic folk horror novella Malina, that's from DNT Publishing in 2021. He's also the editor of the Jewish Book of Horror and the lead editor of Terror at 50 those are both from the Denver Horror Collective, of which he's a co-founding member. And he's also the creator of Josh's Worst Nightmare, where he surveys the dark landscape of biological horror fiction. You can follow him on social media at Josh's Worst Nightmare on Facebook, at Josh's Worst Nightmare on Twitter, Josh's Worst Nightmare on Instagram, Josh's Worst Nightmare on YouTube, and Josh's Worst Nightmare on TikTok. And you can contact him, if you dare, at Josh at Josh's Worst Nightmare. Just a quick little programming note. So I'm going to be taking a little bit of time off for the holidays, but I will be back in the new year. I've got some cool stuff coming up. I'll be talking to horror and thriller author Derek Cavignano. I'll also have Gwendolyn Kaiston to talk about her upcoming horror novel, The Haunting of Velkwood. And I'm going to have filmmaker Tom Eberhardt on to talk about his long-running career, including the classic cult horror movie, Night of the Comet. So you can look for all of that in 2024, along with much, much more. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please go to whatever streaming platform you're using. Give me five stars. Go ahead and leave a review. Tell your friends. Share this on social media. And here we go with Josh Schlossberg. So hi, Josh. Welcome home to the show. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and thanks for coming on. So your name came up when uh, I was interviewing Daniel Brom recently, uh, back over the summer. He mentioned being in your anthology that you edited, uh, The Jewish Book of Horror, which I have in my hand right here. Nice. I had actually picked up the book uh, when I was up at uh, in Denver for StokerCon last year. I, I think I was over at Black and Red over in uh, Wadsworth. Yeah. And I saw it there and was just like, oh, this looks right up my alley. I'm Jewish. I like horror. <laughs> Here we go. And and it's it's really a great anthology. And then so of course talking to Daniel and I loved his story. I really wanted to talk to you about this and then sat down and read some of your work and really kind of fell in love with your work. So oh, thank you. I guess uh just to start off with, just uh I always like to kind of just get people's like origin story, just you know, where are you from and kind of how what was your early writing journey like and how'd you find your way to horror? Yeah. So what author doesn't like talking about himself, right? So <laughs> I was born in the Hudson River Valley of New York State. And okay. so forests and ticks all around me, things like that. And I eventually moved up to Vermont and Oregon, mm. back to Vermont, Colorado. But the writing I did early on was mostly just school stuff, basically mm. bullshit book <laughs> reports, yeah. just on books that I didn't read. And so that's when I realized when I got, I think it was like a 10 out of 10 on a book report on a book that I just had my dad summarize the movie to me. I was like, huh, maybe I'm good at this stuff. I think the earliest horror I wrote was, I remember it must've been third, fourth grade. I wrote a recap of a B movie called Green Slime. I think it was called. Mm. It was basically a black and white horror movie where they go to outer space there's some jelly that gets on their foot and it ends up being an alien entity so i remember Mm. writing 
just a recap of it. And my teachers liked it, I guess. Actually, I don't remember. I don't think that would have mattered to me. It was just like, <laughs> I remember enjoying writing about the dark, weird mm-hmm. thing. But I didn't really get into a lot of dark fiction writing, I would say, until really college. Mm. And in high school, I would write some dark poetry that was influenced by a lot of the horror stuff, reading lots of Lovecraft, which I think I see a Lovecraft cover in the back of your wall there. (laughs) Those probably those exact books. Yeah, the Michael Whalen covers of the Del Rey paperbacks, right? That's it, exactly. So yeah, just this poetry that had maybe Bradbury aspects, Mm -hmm. but was not particularly very good, but I was into a mood, kind of this Mm -hmm. dark, wistful mood, but I didn't really develop my craft. Then in college, I did study a bit more writing, although I was pretty half-assed with it, but we did have short story writing Mm -hmm. and I would write an occasional horror story that I kept just coming back to that. And that's a lot of the fiction I read, though not exclusively. And I watch horror Mm -hmm. movies and things like that, but, uh, you know, I, it wasn't my identity per se, but, uh, over my twenties, I started writing occasional horror stories. And then I decided I'm going to write a a dark fiction novel. It never got published. It dabbled in horror pandemic stuff, actually. This Mm, was like 15 years ago or whatever. Oh, wow. And But then I started, you know what? I'm going to focus more on the horror fiction angle. And I started to write a bunch of short stories. And then I helped found Denver Horror Collective because my writer critique group here in Denver was not horror-based. And I realized getting feedback from non-horror fans on Mm -hmm. horror is worthless (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i just started writing more short stories then you know i've written a novella novel edited stuff and all that it's interesting the story you told about the book reports i had a very similar uh when i was in high school i remember we were supposed to read the scarlet letter and i just couldn't be bothered like (laughs) (laughs) which unfortunately i'm a little bummed out of myself after the fact i feel like i might have actually liked some of these books but at the time i was like no i just couldn't be bothered i didn't even bother with the cliff notes i think i just kind of paid attention to class discussions and then i showed up for the exam on it and i didn't realize it was going to be all essay questions all right. So I just bullshitted my way through the essay questions and I got an A plus and my teacher actually read one of my answers to the classes, <laughs> an example of quote out of the box thinking. And I was like, well, I don't know Real if I'm a good writer or just this, a good yeah, Great a good take on this story. It's almost as if you watched a whole different or read a whole different book. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And that was definitely eye-opening it was like oh okay yeah i think it was eye-opening to me in terms of like sort of literary criticism how much of it is just kind of subjective and like, well for sure and then yeah. as a writer you are basically just training yourself to be a good liar and yeah that's exactly basically what it is i like to think of course you know you have a a deeper truth in the writing it shouldn't be just there to trick right. people or whatever but i think writing to a certain degree is just lying so if yeah. you can just make up, all right, this is a story about a lady and something happened to her. All right, yeah. what, what's what's the thing that could happen with a lady? Let me just have a general take on that. <laughs> well, I was, a, I was a journalism major and I've always said, like, I realized I probably got out of newspaper writing at a, the right time when I realized, like, I just, I had that impulse to, like, I just wanted to make the stories a little better. Right. It was like, I wanted to just make someone's quote a little better. Or just, and I was like, no, that that takes you down a dark path. You know, well, that's like, almost all journalism today. <laughs> I actually worked as a journalist for years. Yeah. I, I 
I was, did a lot of nonprofit environmental mm -hmm. stuff, but then I took a break to do journalism and I worked as a journalist for, you know, there was some crossover with advocacy journalism, but at least five years, I was just doing straight on journalism mm -hmm. and I, all my peers were basically just, let's just say activists. And I was like, I'm trying to actually not be an activist for once. <laughs> and now is the time I should have actually been an activist because that's what everyone else was doing. So I got out of journalism. <laughs> you got out of it probably the wrong time because that's all of a sudden when just yeah i'm just gonna tweak this yeah. that's, that is journalism now fiction i guess so has, i guess that's true <laughs> fiction i think has more deeper truths a lot of times because yeah mm -hmm. even though you're making up a story you're making up characters everyone knows that's all fabricated but right. you're getting at something a deeper current and you know hopefully a variety of perspectives yeah i think yeah. that's absolutely true and i think in particular with um i, I want to get to it in a little bit but uh melina your novella i really felt like that you were getting at some real deep truths with that one but i don't want to get ahead of ourselves um how'd you end up in denver you said you were kind of bouncing around oregon and the east coast how did how did colorado uh, end up yeah. being where you were at i had only gone to colorado when i was 12 my parents took me and my sister out on a trip and we drove around the state and it just always stuck in my mind as mm -hmm. a beautiful cool place i lived in oregon i I was craving the West after living in the Northeast, which I mm -hmm. also love Vermont and all that. But there's definitely a big difference between the rugged West and the more right. refined garden-like Northeast. Mm -hmm. And so moved back to Vermont after being in Oregon for years and then uh, doing forest protection stuff. I've, I've done a lot mm. of advocacy and environmental stuff. And I went back to Vermont, but then I was just getting the craving again for more rugged landscape. I just get mm -hmm. a craving for landscapes and I feel like I have to go. Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, I want to go back West. I don't want to go to Oregon again per se. Uh, let me check Colorado out a little more. I had an uncle who was living in Denver and I was, mm. I was also, you know, looking to engage a little more in a city that was close to nature, unlike East coast cities, which are just kind of right isolated and uh san francisco is a little too large seattle's a little too large portland i just i was kind of done with oregon and i was like let me just check out denver boulder area and so uh, i visited my uncle here and i stood on his balcony and i could see the mountains i was like i think i could do this mm -hmm. i think i could do this so i i moved out to boulder and then i ended up moving to denver for a while and then i during the pandemic i, I retreated to evergreen up mm -hmm. in the mountains which, which yeah. i love and I've since then moved back down to Boulder County. That's where I am okay. again. But just the, the landscape is really, I, there's something yeah. about the combination here of these tall grass meadows and the fingers of those meadows going mm -hmm. into the forest that just, I don't, it strikes a chord in me. Well, you know, I'm, I'm in New Mexico. I grew up down here in New Mexico and I've spent a lot of time in Colorado. My grandparents lived up around Durango. So I would spend summers up there. I went to college in Alamosa, which is Southern Colorado. And then I've been, I've lived off and on in Denver. I lived up in Denver for a summer. I've spent a lot of time up there. Colorado, I've had the same thing where Colorado just always has had this like tug for me, yeah. you know. And there's something about the, just the, like, you know, I went to graduate school in Boston and mm -hmm. I would make it up to New Hampshire and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's beautiful mountains and stuff. Oh, yeah. But the imposing, like, I wouldn't even say Colorado mountains are beautiful because they're so imposing. They're right. so almost frightening you know right that it yeah. that it is really and i think for people like you and me <laughs> drawn to the subject matter we're drawn to i know some people are like the draw <laughs> that sounds terrible <laughs> but... <Yeah. laughs> 
like I'm I'm fascinated by like if you go around by in fact uh one of my more recently published short stories is about I don't know if you've ever heard of Black Bear Pass around um Telluride. No. It's oh it's, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Those I those have, I haven't been there. Shelf, yeah, those like shelf roads, the old mining jeep trails that go up over the mountains that are basically like, like thousand foot drops on one side. I've heard tell because I yeah, I actually yeah. I go out in the mountains a lot. I do a lot of driving, but drop-offs freak me out. And so yeah. I've I've heard about those roads out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you ever want to scare yourself, go over Loveland Pass. That's a that's a good. Uh, it's paved, but it's I think I I think spooky. I have done Loveland. Loveland didn't freak me out. It's got to be like sheer drop-offs. Those mm-hmm. are the things that bug me. But uh, so this things in Utah. So because part of the reason I came oh, out yeah. to Colorado was to be close to the desert. So I'm obsessed with the Southwest. So mm-hmm. New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, I've been out mm-hmm. many, many times. Where in New Mexico are you? Well, I'm in Albuquerque. I grew up in Los okay. Alamos. So all, uh, Northern New Mexico, Central New Mexico. Yeah, um, I love it there. I love it there. I, I took a drive down 285 down into New Mexico. It's basically, you know, like a state highway through the whole state of Colorado right. into New Mexico, down to mm-hmm. Santa Fe. It's a, it's an amazing drive. I, I love, yeah. I love both of those states. I do. Th- I mean, I think, you know, I'm biased. I do think it's probably the most beautiful part of the country. I would say actually that Oregon, Northern California coast is maybe a close second. And actually like sure. Vermont, New Hampshire is also quite. They're all very unique beauty in a very different way and yeah i feel blessed to live in a country that has all of these ecosystems Mm -hmm. that are just such they're different worlds but uh they're all here and and talk a little bit about the because obviously it comes up in charwood um but talk about a little bit more about the the kind of forestry work and the activism there how did you get into that and what what specifically kind of work have you done Right. So just around protecting forests, just old fashioned trees mm-hmm. are good kind of stuff and how it ties into climate change. And I don't want to get to appreciate that this is a political podcast, but oh, one, of the best, <laughs> one of the best things we can do for climate change is to protect forests. They store mm-hmm. and sequester carbon. And so, you know, of course, then there's wildfire stuff, but there's a lot of misconceptions about wildfire being bad and that we need mm-hmm. to log. And so I, I actually get into some of those political aspects in charwood although charwood is barely about that it's Mm -hmm. it's more just about being out in the forest and then there's a jewish mysticism element Mm -hmm. and then these dark entities so i kind of use the fight around forest stuff as sort of a a backdrop or just a a trojan horse to get into the really weird dark stuff Mm -hmm. well i one thing I thought, and maybe we can go ahead and I, I do want to get back to Molina, but maybe we can go ahead and dive into Charwood because it's kind of a good segue. And what I thought you did, what I was really impressed with with Charwood is the combination of elements. It's got sort of classic folk horror elements. It's got classic kind of sort of political suspense thriller elements. You do get into the political kind of dialogue around climate change, around forestry, around biomass, and then the working in of of both the sort of kind of ancient paganism and then this Jewish mysticism, I thought was like really, it was just a really interesting combination of elements. I guess I, my first question, I do want to talk about just kind of the that the Jewish aspect of horror. Mm-hmm. Like where does that come from? Like I'm assuming you're Jewish or have that background. Where was it that, that draws you to bring that element into your fiction? Um, were you 
observant because you know i'm jewish but i was not raised very observant so i'm in my 40s kind of trying to learn a lot more about Mm -hmm. the the theological aspects of judaism which i was kind of not kept away from i guess i would say um but just you know my dad wasn't particularly interested Mm -hmm. i think he had had enough of it as a kid and what you know he's pretty secular so i have more interest you know myself as an adult were you observant growing up and were you where does where does that line between the fantasy and the religious aspects kind of cross in your fiction? Yeah, that's a good question. I was raised not religiously Jewish, but I did go to a Jewish day school when I was younger. Mm. And my parents told me it was because it was the only full-time kindergarten in the area. So they just didn't Mm. want to deal with me during the day. So they're just like, yeah, (laughs) this this place keeps them all day. So that's the reason (laughs) they chose it. Now, my parents, you know, they went to a conservative synagogue. They you know, they go to the high holidays. They're not mm-hmm. like religious zealots by any means. My grandmother, my grandparents lived next door to me, my paternal grandparents. My grandmother was the most Jewish person. She was like a legit mm-hmm. religious, you know, conservative Jew. Right. Um, and, and we would have our Shabbat dinners every Friday and, and things like that. So I learned all the staples. And yeah, I never remember being believing in in the details but you know i was like all right this is cool to learn mm-hmm. this i learned hebrew i learned some of the mm-hmm. the culture i got my bar mitzvah and then after that you know in my late teens and early 20s and stuff it was just kind of like a fun joke yeah i'm a jew i'm jewish it's just yeah. like a fun thing to play with this a little flavor and you know i'd have a, a dreidel and you know eat some latkes here and there and right <laughs> whatever that's that's about And then, you know, as I got older, realizing more and more, you know, this is, it's a, it's a really interesting, unique uh, culture that has contributed a lot to the world. And so I just, Mm -hmm. you know, I became just kind of re-engaged in it to a small degree, Mm -hmm. hardly anything, still not even going to synagogue. And then I did date, uh, it's like a a reverse kind of thing, like a Jewish doctor. Like it's supposed to be (laughs) the dream of the woman to date the the Jewish doctor. People are like, oh, do you snag the Jewish doctor? I'm like, is that good for a guy to do? I don't even yeah. know. And uh, but anyway, so she was she was conservative Jewish, and her mm-hmm. family was a lot more religious, mm-hmm. sort of. You know, still just liberal Jews who who did a little more on Shabbat and things like right. that. And so I was just you know going to a little bit of synagogue, and we did a little bit more there. And uh, you know that didn't end up working out or whatever, but that kind of re-engaged me. And I'll have to say when it ties into the the horror stuff, just mostly over the last several years, I was starting to do anthologies and edit mm. anthologies and stuff like that. And we we did one that was called Consumed Tales Inspired by the Wendigo. And mm-hmm. I didn't choose it. So I only did copy edits for this. This was yeah, I actually horror. submitted to that. I didn't make it no in, kid- but I, oh. I did submit to it. <laughs> I wasn't the editor. Don't blame me. But um <laughs> It was a project submitted uh, by one of by two of our members, uh, mm-hmm. Henry and Holly Snyder, to edit it, and they brought up the concept. And a part of me was actually a little like, well, you know, it does tie into the Native American oral tradition. Is you know, I was just a little bit concerned about the topic, um, mm-hmm. but kind of the appropriation. Right, right. Or, yeah. But we we addressed the the things and I actually as the the publisher I actually wrote kind of a a note in the book like I made like a funny story around mm-hmm. all that stuff. But but regardless, I I think we did it in a sensitive way whatever people are free to disagree. It's actually it's a very good anthology. Actually, I did pick it up and I think it's a really good. And cool. I think you guys did handle it and there's a a wide range of stories. I think it does handle it 
the subject right. matter in a well, I'm glad to hear responsible that. We, way. We had Owl going back, who mm-hmm. you know is a Native American horror author. He he wrote an introduction, and uh, we called it Tales Inspired by the Wendigo. So right. I think that let us off the hook. But anyway, that process started to get me thinking. Like, I'd like to do an anthology that gets into a a, a unique horror angle where I don't have to run the risk of being canceled. And yeah. I remember talking to my mom about stuff and I'd be like, I should just do one. I'll do a Jewish one. Cause that's the only one people mm-hmm. can't take me down for. Right. <laughs> and, sure. and then I was like, that's not a bad idea. So like mm-hmm. it just started kind of as a joke with my mom complaining to my mom about <laughs> stuff. And then I was like, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to call it the Jewish book of horror, very arrogant way of titling it. Like the, <laughs> Yeah. And I was like, this is it. This is going to be it. And uh, yeah, we, I think it was a success. I mean, it's definitely the most successful anthology that I've been a part of and uh, through Denver Horror Collective and it's selling, right. It's our bestseller around the world. We, we get mm-hmm. sales around, I mean, Asia, Europe, South America, all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's, and the reason it's so successful is like, I'm not going to pat myself on the back. It is from all the great submissions from the authors. Mm-hmm. That's why. Yeah, I, it's one of the ones because I did submit to the Wendigo one, and I wanted to submit to this one. I remember when the submission call came up, huh. and uh, I just never got it together. Like I had kind of an idea for a story, didn't quite, couldn't quite make it work, and then it was past the deadline. You know, how right? It goes. And it then does. of course I got the anthology. I was like, God ah, damn it, because it's such a good anthology. <laughs> and I, like I said, I love Daniel's story. I mean, got Alana Gomel in there. It's a really great uh, table of contents. I, I strongly recommend it. There's some good stuff in there. And Frank, I'll, mm-hmm. I passed up so many good stories too. Like my only regret is not doing a double volume and maybe there'll mm-hmm. be a part two another well if you do i will probably try and submit that time <laughs> that would be that would yeah. be awesome but it was through editing the jewish book horror and just getting all this array of different stuff that it actually re-engaged my interest in judaism and i started specifically researching jewish demonology <laughs> so mm. the kabbalah which i have elements of the kabbalah mentioned right. in, in charwood, in charwood right. But specifically, you know, Ashmodai, just all these old school demons that have been sort of Christianized, but actually mm-hmm. came from Jewish stuff, but probably before that, even Babylonian, and there's a lot of different origin, mm-hmm. whatever. But Judaism has its own background of demonology, and they sure as hell did not teach me that at Hebrew day mm-hmm. school. Right. But I wish they would have, because it's so cool. I know. <laughs> Yeah. So go ahead. I know we're, we kind of skipped over Molina and I want to go back to it. Um, but since we're talking about Charwood, go ahead and just kind of give us like the thumbnail, I don't know, pitch or, or, or log line of Charwood. And let's talk about that a little bit. Cause I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really good book. Cool. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's been a while since I've recited the details. So <laughs> I, for, I always forget my log line, but basically woman in the woods, she wants to join up with what she thinks is a climate action group she finds Mm -hmm. out that they're actually advocating for cutting and burning forests for energy which Mm -hmm. seems a little off but she's like whatever they know better Mm -hmm. she gets engaged with some sort of blackmail with one of the members and she's sort of stuck with them and then she kind of falls for the leader and then Mm -hmm. all of these revelations come out that they're not quite what they seem and a lot of dark entities and forces ensue. Mm-hmm. She's Jewish. She has some 
conflicts with her Orthodox Jewish father, mm-hmm. who's actually in the process of visiting. So I play off of traditional modern and masculine feminine elements, which are detailed in the Kabbalah. So the, the Kabbalah right. tree of life is basically these different concepts and they split in masculine feminine and that's a difficult thing people understand so it's more like yin and yang right so a yielding and uh taking influence those sorts of things not like female male that's that's not that's an oversimplification a feminine quality Mm -hmm. versus a masculine quality women can have masculine qualities men can have you know feminine so i play on all of that stuff and just taking place as a folk horror Thing in the forests of Colorado with that just flavor, that just Jewish flavor of well, mist. I thought like that in her character was so interesting to me because you know she she was raised you know, her name's Orna she was raised Orthodox she is very angry as the book starts she's very angry with her father uh, because as she views it her father kind of as her mother was dying of cancer she feels like her father wasn't fighting for her mother and of course. It, as we find out, I don't want to spoil anything, but um, this is a very much an over. She's oversimplifying <laughs> the, right. the situation. Exactly. exactly. And one thing about her is that I found really fascinating is the way she kind of oversimplifies a lot. Like she tends to see things through a filter that I felt like I'm both seeing things through her filter, but I'm but we're always like slightly seeing things through a slightly wider filter. So like like one one example is like there's a flashback scene where she's talking to her mother um as her mother is I think it's supposed to be like a week before her mother dies. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear her mother is trying to reach out to her and like trying to have this almost like spiritual conversation with her. And Orna is in this like state of denial about the fact her mother's about to die. And so she's twisting everything her mother says into this like political like all oh, this Jew, you know this like orthodox Jewish stuff is so sexist and everything and i'm saying that thinking like just stop and listen to your mother <laughs> like she's trying to reach out to you and it was a really interesting because i liked one like she's a very likable character but at the same time uh, on a human level i was frustrated with her because i was always kind of like you know like i said she's she's you can kind of see like the bad decision she's making as she's making it you know and it, it's that kind of like watching the horror movie and wanting to yell at the screen kind of thing like why are you going there <laughs> you know because it all comes from a very human place with her but but at the same time having just a little bit of distance of not being in her specific circumstance i was able to kind of see her circumstance with maybe a little bit more um clarity you know so i thought that was a really interesting experience i guess of just of reading that character as you were writing her like how how much how much were you kind of trying to walk that line of sympathy and also allowing her the space to make these kind of clearly sort of mistakes interesting yeah so that's probably the riskiest component of Charwood. And I know people, some people don't like the book because, well, as me, as a guy had, a, I decided to do a woman character mm-hmm. and she has flaws and I'll, she has less flaws than all my male characters, but you know, there, there's a little bit of, you know, tiptoeing around there. I wanted to be careful. I did not want to make an unsympathetic 
character i did not want her to make her just you know like some idiot which she's certainly not but of no, course she's not yeah. it's horror so horror everyone's going to be making bad decisions and so what mm -hmm. i kind of did was i took my own version of my progressivism where i felt the need to sort of rebel against traditional values mm -hmm. and i think that there's a valid stages of you have this you know this acceptance of we can call it the the thesis the thesis mm -hmm. would be this traditional values believe in this do this this is what you're supposed to do and then kind of the next stage would be an antithesis so you're like well I should be able to do this and I should be able to do this. And this is why this is dumb that so she's kind mm -hmm. of in the antithesis, right? So some legitimate right. complaints about this traditional, sometimes stifling tradition, but then mm -hmm. there's a next stage, which is synthesis where you realize, Oh, right. If you cut out the traditional from under say a postmodern progressive, you got no values to stand on, take the best from all of those. So that's kind of, you know, if I if I give away my secret, I'm I'm not trying to shit on progressivism or traditionalism. I'm trying to critique the elements that mm -hmm. are not as useful and valid without discarding all the ones that still are. I think if there's a critique in there, it's about fundamentalism. You know, whether it's progressive or or regressive fundamentalism. You know, it, it it's it, the critique is I think about putting on blinders because. And I think that's what makes, I can understand, I guess, the criticism maybe the people have of her character, but I didn't take it. I certainly didn't take it as her being stupid. Um, right. I don't like, think she's stupid. Yeah. I don't think she's stupid, but what I did see, and I think it's what I recognize because I feel like I've known people like that. And I could also recognize like a younger version of myself. Yeah, me too. I mean, that would have been like that too, where, you know, you're, you're, it's confirmation bias. You know, you're, you're, you're believing what you want to believe because you're trying to make the world make sense in either a political way or a spiritual way or a relationship with other people way or a relationship with your family way. You're trying to like put things in like easy to understand boxes and categories. And right. as you get older, you realize that's rarely <laughs> works out that way, but she hasn't quite gotten there yet. You know, she's, right. she's like early thirties. I think you said so. Yeah. Yeah. Makes Typical. Sense. I mean, to be honest, it's those were my perspective. So basically mm -hmm. all of the arguments she makes that some readers might be like right on others. Like, yeah, there's some lackey. Those are all my arguments. So if there's mm -hmm. any critique of like, here I am making this straw man character to just knock her down. Like, no, those were literally my beliefs. And yeah. I tried to advocate for them as best as possible. And, you know, and then of course, when it goes in the environmental perspective, I try to give a broad brush, but I would say that's more, you know, I do lean towards the, the progressive views on pretty much every issue mm -hmm. personally but yeah the fundamentalism i'm glad that you use that term because that's a term i use a lot no matter mm -hmm. what your fundamentalism is it's uh it's going to be like a, a at the best of a, a pinhole right world and she's and i feel like that's what she's struggling against because she has these moments of doubt where she's seeing the wider world but then it kind of like snaps back you know and she starts seeing through the pinhole again mm -hmm. until as the story progresses, she kind of can't help but see the wider context. And that's her growth. You know, that's that's the arc of her growth. If she starts seeing both the situation with this group, you know, the mm -hmm. tenders more clearly. Um, she starts seeing her relationship with her father more clearly. She starts seeing her relationship with herself and her spirituality more clearly, you know. So, I, I mean, it is a risky approach to a character to show someone who is, in an honest way, kind of susceptible to 
that kind of fundamentalist way of thinking or or that kind of like i said confirmation bias way of thinking right i think if she had stayed there that would have been a problem but i think it's about you know slowly taking those blinders away from her and i think that that's what makes her to me she was a very compelling character because like i said i've been there i like i uh, i could look at her the younger version of myself i i was right there with her and that brings me to the i thought it was really interesting how you presented this this group the tenders you know they're selling themselves as an environmental activist group and yet their argument is for essentially clear-cutting and burning down forests and like they're trying to make this like pro-environmentalism argument and i thought it was really interesting where you would almost convince me where i was like wait is it are they for real and then i was like no wait maybe they're not being super honest you know that's clearly from your uh background in the subject matter how much i mean obviously how much research went into that and like is that something is is that like a true this this kind of biomass activism is that like a true uh wing of environmentalism out there or is this something that's that's all real so the political angle which again if you're not into politics or you hate trees or whatever you can still (laughs) read the you can still read the book and and love mm-hmm. it. You know, I, I, you know, that's not central to enjoying the story. But yeah, I wanted to give it a realistic backdrop, and mm-hmm. that's based almost exactly on the work I had done, where I was doing forest protection stuff. And there's been all of this advocacy for logging to protect communities from wildfire, which there's grain of truth in that you can protect the area right around your home. But if you go out into the backcountry log trees, it doesn't ha- not only doesn't help, it makes things worse. But anyway, right. so I started doing this forest protection stuff and then, you know, climate change became more of an issue and we're like, cool, let's protect more forests. We did conferences mm-hmm. around that, but then there was this contingent of some of them were environmentalists. Some of them were mm-hmm. just cynical business people in the timber industry or whatever. And they're saying, we got to cut trees down we're going to burn them and this is going to be our new clean energy source and people are still doing this but mm-hmm. we fought back against it i mean you know a lot of the big environmental groups were advocating for this but we were we kept being like look at the science look at the studies use common sense and finally mm-hmm. got them to back off after years of this so it's a real thing and here in colorado it's actually the main issue i'm working on right now is trying to protect forests there's millions and literally tens of millions of acres that are proposed to be cut across the west including a new project in uh new mexico and uh yeah so this that's real that's ongoing this is you know i wanted to give it a, a genuine political angle but again i wanted to make sure that the book stands on its own with its mm-hmm. own plot with its own folk horror thing so right. you, know, you don't have to agree with the politics that's just yeah. the the house for the larger uh, story and that's definitely the way it read is that the politics you know it piqued my because i'm interested in some of the same issues so it kind of piqued my interest in wanting to read more on on you know biomass and forest protection and stuff but fundamentally i was really into the the demonology you know and and again not wanting to spoil anything but kind of the way they manipulate orna into thinking one you know when she starts figuring out what their agenda really is that you know they kind of convince her it's one thing and then she starts finding out oh maybe it's another thing you know but it's like no there's it's, it was the peeling the onion aspect of you know 
wait, is it this environmental thing? Oh, wait, is it like, uh, are they in the pocket of big business? Oh, wait, oh, is it this religious thing? Oh, is it even the deeper religious thing? You know, and as you keep going down the rabbit hole, it gets weirder and weirder. That that was what was really, from a horror perspective, that was what was really compelling. Right. And I wanted to write eco-horror. I did make a concerted effort to write an eco-horror novel. But again, I didn't want it to be a preachy kind of thing. I didn't want it to yeah. be all central around that. But I legitimately did do my best to what is the argument in favor of the thing that I personally don't think is a good thing. I tried to yeah. I set up all of the best arguments, you know, a steel man versus straw man thing. Right. So I hope I did that. I and think then, you did because like I said, you almost convinced me, you know, I was like this, you know, first I was like, this doesn't sound right. And then I was like, well, maybe. Mm -hmm. Then I was like, oh, maybe not, <laughs> you know. And then so. it's a whole other thing. So it's and not then it's really, a whole other thing. It's right. not a, and just for, because the other thing, because all these areas are so, you know, filled with minefields. Like it's certainly not an attack on the climate change environmental movement. It's, it's about, although some of the climate change environmental movement has fallen for this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's more just like, what is actually going on in the forest? You know, there are some silly politics around what generally is environmental and, yeah. you know, and, and then the idea of that all loggers are bad. Like, of course they're not. And of course yeah. we need wood products, but how do we, where do we need them from? You know, how do, do we need, you know, so they're using all these justifications to cut forests. Right. And I think that's, that's some bullshit. Yeah. I mean, you're basically presenting two kind of counter counter arguments I thought fairly yeah. and then moving away from that, like you said, into like, you know, that's actually just really like the, the sort of real world uh, doorway into this, like spiritual horror, you know? Right. Right. And I thought that was really effective. Well, that's cool. Cause yeah, I crammed a lot of stuff in there and just like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I would joke like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm writing my eco Jewish folk horror novel, yeah. you know, like everyone writes at some point right. in time. In their life. <laughs> and I really liked the character, by the way, I really liked the character of her father, Abba. Oh. Uh, you know, like I said, I was not raised with religious, re religious Judaism at all. So he was really nothing like my father, except for there were mm -hmm. moments that I was like, I could almost see my dad coming through. And so that was kind of interesting seeing that like, even, you know, you have this very Orthodox Jewish father in her father and you have my <laughs> secular engineer father on my side. And I could still see some like commonalities just in personality and stuff. Mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of um, interesting. Just probably like some cultural things that kind of cross over, you know? Sure. I wanted, I do want to talk about Melina because I, I actually found Melina to be one of the most unsettling things that I've read in a very long time. <laughs> I'll take that. It, yeah, and it's very it's very different than Charwood, and it was very unexpected. Um, do you want to kind of give? And let's see. And Malina, I read Molina after Charwood, but um, it actually came before, right? It was. Yeah, that was twenty twenty one. Charwood was this year. Okay. Um, do you want to give kind of just a little bit of a setup for Melina? Yeah. So basically it's an elderly man living with his elderly wife. And I mean like elderly, late eighties. Mm. And she had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia, early stages of it. And he was addressing how to live with that while he himself was experiencing a lot of physical deterioration. So his his mind was still as sound as it was in many ways, but his body was kind of, he was trapped in that and right. vice versa for the wife. 
But then some more things were happening with the wife where he was starting to actually be afraid of her and wondering, wait, is this Alzheimer's at all? Uh Or is this something completely different? And, you know, spoiler alert, because it's in the back of the book, it's something completely different. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, obviously I'm, you know, my birthday was yesterday. I just turned 26. That's right. Happy birthday. Thank you. (laughs) You know, so I'm not elderly, although I'm getting to that, you know, getting the back pains and the carpal tunnel and all the things. We're half I'm I'm 45, so that was my half 90th birthday. Was last right. year. So you got one yeah, on so we're, yeah. we're we're approaching it, but we got a ways to go. But there was something I thought you captured. I thought you captured a couple things. You know, both you know Ward, your your lead character, his the the alternating his love for his wife never wavers, but then this fear that kind of creeps in is he doesn't understand quite what's happening to her we think it's alzheimer's but then like you said wait is there something else going on and then just the helplessness of aging and the helplessness of being um and again i want to be careful don't want to spoil anything but kind of being dependent on other people to take care of you right um you know he's you know he and his wife obviously they're not in a position to fully be independent anymore so there's some caregiver characters that may or may not be quite what they seem and just that that helplessness of you know having been an able-bodied person who could protect your wife mm-hmm. and then now you're in this position of like you can barely walk i mean he, he uses a walker he's you know he's got arthritis he's infirm himself and then of course what he's trying to protect his wife from is something that's happening inside of her mm-hmm. that's something you know there's obviously you know the the march of time is not something you can protect your wife from or if there's something else going on so there was that just real like deep i think horror and then you captured the sense of just that that uncanniness of like here's my wife who i love who also might be something completely unfamiliar and alien and maybe even dangerous um and like you never quite know what version of her we're getting you know i thought so just that i just found like i said i found it really deeply unsettling well that was the goal so yeah (laughs) mission accomplished but also like entertaining one thing you know you you say you're reading oh it's about an elderly man and his wife with alzheimer's it's actually like very action packed, <laughs> like particularly <laughs> mini, towards the mini end. action, right? <laughs> mini yeah. action, no, but no superhero antics. Yeah, no yeah. superheroics, but certainly there's some fight scenes and stuff. Like it's yeah, it's it was very like it was a page turner. I thought. I mean, both Charwood and Molina were, but Molina, I literally read one sitting. I couldn't put it down. Cool. So Great. yeah, there's, I don't really have any other questions about it other than just I really. Um, where where did that I guess my question would be where where did the idea for that come from was the, was there any specific spark because you know that's that's a subject matter writing elderly characters is something I've tended to stay away from largely because I do feel like it's it's not a it's not an experience I really know yet you know obviously so what what was it that kind of led you to want to write about that well, on the surface, I sometimes feel like an old man in some ways mm-hmm. anyway. So uh, I feel like, <laughs> all right, it's not that hard for me to step into that. But it was more, it was loosely based, just like Charwood is based on a real shell of a thing. Mm-hmm. So was Molina. And basically my grandparents, so these were my my maternal grandparents, they were going through, you know, my grandfather was 
they're both elderly. My grandfather was having some physical ailments and my grandmother had mm. Alzheimer's. So, mm. and one of the things I noticed was just, yeah, obviously her, her suffering in, in many ways, but also him suffering greatly. And just, what is it like to have somebody you've known for 75 years mm-hmm. change and the struggles that he was ongoing through that. And right. so that's where my grandparents' life and the story kind of meet and end, you know, the, the characters are not them. It's nothing to not do based with, on them, but you no, know, other than my grandfather is was a little crotchety. So my grandfather has since, uh, you know, I wrote this after they had, they had right. passed away, but, um, my grandfather is a little crotchety. My grandmother is, you know, kind of a sweetheart woman. So that, you know, that vague thing, but the personalities and the actual circumstances, nothing mm-hmm. to do with that, but based on a real thing of experience that being really close to both of my grandparents and, and seeing their, their circumstances. So I, mm-hmm. I just felt like that was something I wanted to capture and I, and I wanted to do it again, you know, like Charwood it's, it's walking on some unstable ground there. I don't want to stigmatize any sort of Alzheimer's downplay it, make fun of it, anything like that. Yeah. But I wanted to mine the territory a little bit. And again, as you read it, you realize it's, you know, Alzheimer's is just the the tip of the iceberg there. Right. No, I thought you really, because I had, you know, my grandmother on my, uh, my dad's side, she didn't have Alzheimer's, but she had, she'd actually uh, suffered. She'd been hit by a car when she was on wow. her, um, she was in her, late 80s early 90s she was on her little scooter and a teenager backed into her and knocked her off and she hit her head and after that had a series of strokes and that led to you know just a progressive dementia over time and seeing that kind of slide you know and the personality changes and stuff Mm -hmm. is very i mean that's very frightening you know to watch someone go through that and I thought you captured that without turning her into a monster. Like, I thought that was what, and that's where I think you're talking about the unstable ground. It's like, right. you don't want to treat her character in an exploitive way. Like, we never lose our sense of, like, there's something terrible happening to her, but we never lose a sense of her as being a victim of this circumstance. Sure. And I think that that is what a lot of the power comes from that's good and that's good it came across that way one of the best compliments i've gotten on the book was from somebody who i think it was his father who had been going through alzheimer's i actually had a few several people contact me who dealt with that in the family but this Mm -hmm. guy in particular and he said you know not only did you handle it sensitively it kind of even gave me some insight and solace into what had been going on with his thing so that was the best Mm -hmm. compliment because again i wanted to play in that area i wanted to explore that area but i did not want to exploit that and just like oh look at this monster with the messed up brain you know that's not yeah. at all my interest with that story but yeah. kind of that that way in that sort of uh insertion point for you know is somebody going insane or is there some darker force behind it that to me is just the classic right. horror trope right so yeah but I think what may, and, and you know, going back to Charwood a little bit, like you said, you're you're kind of taking a risky approach to Orna's character. I think one thing, you know, with the characters in Melina and also with Orna and Charwood, you you clearly are coming at your stories not just from the, oh, I want to write a fucked up horror story, but it's like these are very human stories, and you're writing one thing that really comes through clearly is you're writing from a place of deep empathy. I think. Mm-hmm. 
and that that allows you the room to kind of take these risks risks with the characters because you always have that foundation of humanity with them. Orna could very easily have become a very unsympathetic character in Charwood, but she stays very deeply. So even though she's making mistakes and sometimes doing frustrating things, I never lost my empathy for her or my sympathy for her. She never crossed that line over into me turning against her. And, you know, like you said, um, Ward in uh, Molina, he's pretty crotchety. <laughs> and there's something, you know, you could you could make, you know, he's the husband of a woman with Alzheimer's who's part of his arc is he's very much feeling sorry for himself. And that could also be very uh, unsympathetic. But again, you never lose your sense of sympathy for him or what he's going through. You never, you never turn her fully into a monster in his eyes or in the audience's eyes. So we never lose that foundation. And I think that's what allows, like I said, allows you this room to kind of, to play with the more, I don't want to say darker aspects of their character, but maybe flawed aspects of their characters. Sure. Well, I'm glad that you get that from it. Yeah. And yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not not intentionally trying to make things weightier than they need to be. I think just a, a fun horror romp is is great, mm-hmm. and I've written plenty of stories like that too. But for the novels, I feel like all right, I want to chew on something that I've been mm-hmm. thinking about, and so that's what I tried to do. And like with with Charwood and with Molina, it's a good balance of some weighty stuff to chew on with some good scary atmospherics with like in both cases some good like kind of action sort of page turner kind of suspense uh sort of pot boiler kind of stuff you know so like i said they're both very entertaining reads well i appreciate it and that's really what i want at the end of the day all the other stuff is has no real value if it's not entertaining so at the end of the day i try to maintain a tense taut thriller-ish aspect that yeah, it makes you want to keep going to that next chapter and just ratchets ratchets it up more and more, or even just peels away pieces mm-hmm. as you go along. So uh, I'm glad if I've accomplished that at all. So talk uh, just a little bit more about the Denver Horror Collective. You kind of mentioned it kind of grew out of wanting a, a writers group that that was a little more focused on horror. But what kind of how did it start? How long does it existed and you know what are you guys up to now yeah so it was about 2017 and i remember going to this conference up in the mountains of colorado and it was called the ghost town writers retreat and this was right about Mm -hmm. when i was trying to figure out uh, about starting up a horror writers group critique group and i met a couple folks there i guess three folks who said yeah that's a cool idea so then four of us got together and we started reading each other's i guess it was novels at the time and that was 2017 and it just grew from there and now we have you know about 60 something dues paying members you know we probably had you know another 40 50 people have kind of cycled through and are no longer current members over the years but uh, not just folks in Colorado but across the country and we do our our centerpiece is certainly the critique stuff so we have a monthly in-person short fiction a, a virtual short fiction so anyone can join that and mm. then there's a monthly uh, virtual novel writing group but we've done many other things besides that we're a publishing house we publish three anthologies and then yeah. uh another a short story collection by one of our founding members actually gary roby he, he put okay. out something called um not buried deep enough so that's a new collection that just came out but we've had events we have in-person online events, readings, music and horror, mm. you know, improvisational storytelling, a whole bunch of different things, webinars, book club, bunch of different cool projects over the years. And yeah, folks can check us out at denverhorror.com. Cool. 
um, what what led to the moving into the publishing? Because I've, I've read the Jewish Book of Horror and the Wendigo anthology. I, or I've, I, I should say I haven't read them all the way through, but I've read <laughs> chunks of them. They're both very good anthologies. Um, what what was what was the impetus to want to start putting out your own stuff? Well, I was sort of strong armed into it. I didn't actually think it was a good idea. Yeah, uh, but it was a way of some of us wanting to just here we have all these writers and a lot of us were getting our stuff published elsewhere, but a lot of us weren't. And still all of us still have stories that we can't sell anywhere. And we're just like, right. why don't we just do this ourselves? was the idea. And yeah. so we created, and again, I didn't even come up with the, the thing, but uh, an idea of let's put together a Colorado author's stories that are horror that take place in Colorado. So mm -hmm. we did an anthology called Terror at 5280, you know, Denver at 52. And it was all those stories. And we got some big names. We got Stephen Graham Jones to write an original right. story and, and a few other folks. And then there were some people who had been published a bit like me. And then there were people who had never been published anywhere else. We had that whole variety. Right. And that was successful. We, we sold a lot of copies. People were really into it. And then, like I said, Holly and... Henry Snyder wanted to do their second anthology. So we're like, all right, let's do that. And then I had that Jewish book of horror idea. And now we're doing more member standalone fiction as well. Although we're actually going to be doing another anthology. And uh, I guess I can, I'll just pre-announce it here because who gives a shit, but um, <laughs> it, it's not official yet, but I mean, it is basically, but this call hasn't been put out. So it's going to be a weird Southwestern horror anthology. So the okay. pitch is going to open in uh january so scotty well i will i mean southwestern fiction is that's my bag i pretty much all, i would say 90 percent of what i write is set well, somewhere in the southwest so that sounds like for you so i'm not in i'm barely involved with this process maybe i'll be mm -hmm. doing some copy edits at the end but yeah the editor is going to be ae santana and okay. she's going to be uh yeah putting out that call pretty soon great great well we'll I'll definitely be keeping my eyes open for that one. So <laughs> it's exciting to me because I, yeah. I don't think I, I mean, I'm probably not going to submit anything, but I love Southwestern stuff. And, you know, there's mm. this whole weird Western thing, which has been pretty popular, right. but there hasn't been a ton of just yet yeah, that we that Southwestern horror yeah. stuff, which is right up your alley. Yeah. Well, I, and, you know, one of my, you know, I've written a couple weird Western things, but I like to set sort of more modern kind of like, you know cosmic horror or you know you know sort of modern horror in a southwest setting because like you said i think it's it's almost too easy to be like oh it's set in new mexico it has to be a western you know right 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 so i want to try and like push against that sometimes so I'll, and that's and you should yeah so i'll do like hipsters in albuquerque or something you know that sounds awesome yeah. and i don't think it's like it has to be taking place in 1842 or anything like right. that well, that sounds great. I'm I'm excited about that. Cool. So I will I will 100% be submitted to that. Great, great. Well, I did ask, as I always do, uh, for you to recommend a movie. You recommended the movie Hagazusa, which I had not heard of before. Mm -hmm. That's a wild movie, <laughs> isn't it? So, talk a little bit about that, and what was it about that movie that uh, kind of captured your imagination? Yeah, so I love folk horror, and mm -hmm. I was into sound like a hipster here. Speaking of hipster. I loved folk horror before it was even called folk horror. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know. I just like, why do I always like these things about right. that take place far in the middle of nowhere with some weird culty thing, folk yeah. horror. And so my favorite horror movies are anything folk horror. Basically, if, if the explanation of the film is sort of 
It takes place in a remote place in nature and barely anything happens. I'm like, I am in, <laughs> I, you know, I like the, I like slow burn. I like mm-hmm. boring movies. I like movies where I can just sit here and kind of watch the scenery and just kind of think about what it would feel like to be there. Very atmospheric. Mm-hmm. And I think Hagazusa is one of the best examples of that. I, w- I wouldn't go so far as to call it boring, but I think some people who want, you know, a saw or a hostel would be it's, disappointed. <laughs> it's definitely a slow burn, I would yeah. say. Um, yeah. I did not find it boring at all. I found That's I good. was I was, but I'm like you. I'm I'm drawn to a, a lot of very similar types of stuff. I would say, you know, it's it's in the ballpark of a movie like The Witch. Yes. But it's much weirder than The Witch. (laughs) More disjointed and almost... Much more surreal. Surreal, almost a tone poem. Right. I want to say there's a plot. There's definitely a plot. You might not be able to figure Mm. out what it is. Yeah. Stuff happens. Yeah. So the setup is it's set and I think it's 15th century kind of Bavaria. I was reading up on it a little bit. It's it's a little unclear, but it's like the German Alps. It's a German film in German language. And it, you know, it starts with a young girl and her mother and her mother. The simplistic thing to say about her mother is that her mother gets sick with what's clearly the bubonic plague. Mm-hmm. But it seems like maybe there's something more than that. And then it picks up with the girl again as an adult and she's now essentially a goat herder living on her own on this mountain with her own child. Um, it's a little unclear where that where her child came from. She kind of befriends a local villager, but obviously, you know, the, the what's her name? Uh, uh, Aldrin, I think is her name, is the main mm-hmm. character. She's clearly maybe got some, I don't want to say, it's unclear whether there's a mental illness happening right. there, but there's something going on with her. And then as the story goes, you know, it's about her relationship with this neighbor, but then that kind of takes a very dark turn and then things just get much stranger and stranger as it goes. And it gets, and it goes to some very dark places. Yes. I really loved it. I thought it was a really um, compelling, beautifully shot film. I mean, just gorgeous to look at. And if, you know, like you said, if, if you're into just like watching nature, you know, an atmosphere. It's just steeped in that. That those alpine environments, both summertime and wintertime, are just hmm. incredible. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I think if you're at all into folk horror, check out Hagazusa. Of course, it's you know, there's witch elements, there's psychedelic stuff. There are mm-hmm. some upsetting scenes in it. So for sure. Trigger warning for kind of assault stuff. Like that's yeah. Uh, but it's it's not gratuitous right. in that it, it's part of I mean, it's historically accurate if you're a woman alone back in the bad old days, bad shit happened to people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, whereas the witch, I think, ultimately kind of occupies a very literal space, you know? And that it's like the witch aspect of it is very literal. It's not as clear in Hagazusa. You know, it's how much of this is is an interior, what's happening in Aldrin's head and how much is external. And I'm always a sucker for that. Right. It leaves it up to interpretation. Yeah, no, I I think I really like that too. And I try to play with that in my fiction. But with Mm. the film, it's 
I don't want to say it's easier, but like, you know, you're, you're just seeing scenes from the outside. So you don't know what's going on inside the head. So you can kind of obscure more of the thoughts. Yeah. Is she, is is she insane? Is, is is she on, is she tripping? Are there some dark spells? Is she, Mm -hmm. you know, is it all of the above? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, yeah, it's definitely, it was a trip. It was, it you know, it starts off as pretty slow and I was like, okay, I'm enjoying this. It's kind of like the witch. And then it, it starts taking some turns kind of in the second half that were just very mm. unexpected. It gets very strange, very trippy, but it's all very earned. Like it doesn't never felt weird for the sake of weird. It felt like okay. everything is like building on itself in a way. You know? Yeah. And I got to look to see even who made it and to see if that person has made other films because yeah, I thought that was a, so, okay. Lucas, Feigenfeld in his feature directorial debut so in 2017. So mm-hmm. uh have to see if uh if old Lukey Feigenfeld has done some <laughs> other stuff. Yeah, I didn't look him up. I read a little bit about the film itself, but I didn't read much about him. Doesn't exist, it says. There's no <laughs> there's no page for him. So maybe that's the only thing he ever did. Okay, well, yeah, but I'm I've got to imagine he's he's gonna have something else because it's just too it's just too beautiful of a film for him not to get some work out of this. He had pre I just found that he does have some previous stuff, but 2011, 2014 doesn't seem like anything since then. Hmm, so maybe maybe he maybe he was killed after making this. I don't know. So <laughs> I'll double back on that. But yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. So I'm, yeah. I'm glad to share that. I don't think I've I've suggested that to anyone because I don't want to like waylay them and being like, come on, man, I thought this would be, give me an it, you know, give yeah. me a, something more digestible. I mean, I would say, you know, it, it's definitely not going to, like you said, it's not going to be for everyone if you're under the saw. You know, like I talked to uh, Angela Sylvain last week and the movie we talked about was Chud. It's it's very different than Chud. You know, it's Angela Chud. is a Denver Horror Collective member. So, yeah, and yeah. she's and she's a fantastic writer. We, we talked about yeah. Frostbite and I love that book too. Cool. But, you know, <laughs> I would say, uh, yeah, uh, Chud and Hagazusa are off, uh, occupying very different horror spaces. <laughs> but they're all they're all part of the same. All, yeah, all part of the same kind of uh, aesthetic. But if you're into like the A24 kind of arty kind of European horror movie trend that's happening now, I think mm-hmm. I, I think I think Hagazusa kind of falls in that. Sure that realm i think there's definitely you know if you like the witch i think you i think you're likely to get something out of it but but be aware it's a lot weirder and darker than the witch i think yeah yeah so all right well thank you very much for coming on um i would definitely love to stay in touch i'd love to have you come back on in the future well i really appreciate you inviting me on giving me an opportunity to talk about my books and about the topic with somebody who's really knowledgeable and passionate and a writer yourself. Mm. So uh, yeah, thank you. Well, there you go. There's another episode of horror from the high desert. Uh, Thank you very much, Josh Schlossberg for coming on. Thank you guys very much for listening. Uh, Just to remind everyone, I am going to be taking a break for the holidays, but I will be back in the new year. In the meantime, if you could go to whatever streaming platform you're using, go ahead and leave five stars, leave a review, tell your friends, spread the word on social media, and I'll be back with you guys again in 2024.